Thank you. Folks, can I add to the welcome that Dave's already given you a warm welcome? I'm very conscious again this morning of seeing uh, quite a number of faces of people that I either don't know at all or don't know very well. Um, so it's lovely to have you here with us. I'm Christoph Ebbinghaus, the, the minister here in the church. If you come to any of our services, you're likely to find quite a, a number of people taking part in it. So um, at least that lets you know who I am and what my role here is. Dave's already mentioned that we have begun a, a series in the, the Ten Commandments. We started last week with the First Commandment. Um, I don't need to tell you how long this series is going to run. Um, you can probably work that out. Um, but today, uh, and just now, we're going to come and look at, at the second of the commandments. Just before we do that, let's ask for God's help uh, with us uh, as we look at his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who tells us what's on your mind. You tell us about who you are. You tell us about who we are. You tell us of the lengths that you've gone to, to save us and rescue us. You tell us of your great love for us. Lord, we pray that today, as we look at your word for a few moments together, that these things will come together for us. These great, great truths that you share would come alive in our minds and our hearts uh, and would birth new life in each one of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I'd encourage you to have that passage open before you because today's command's a little bit longer than the, the very simple first commandment that we looked at last week. So having the text open before you will help you. Um, page 78, if you're using the Bible there in the pew. Probably the best thing to do with the the second commandment is to talk for a second as we introduce it about how it relates to and develops uh, the theme of the first one. They're, they're quite similar and, and from that point of view we want to see how, how the two are related but, but how they, they're not exactly the same, how one's a development of the other. Uh, let me put it to you like this. The first commandment rules out worshipping false gods and the second commandment rules out worshipping the true God in false ways. The first commandment has to do with the unity of God, the, the reality that there is only one God and we're to have no other gods before him. The second command has more to do with the nature of God. He, he's a God who is spirit and he's to be worshipped in spirit and truth. We can't concretize God and make him into something uh, for ourselves to manage. That's why we don't make for ourselves any sort of an idol and we don't bow down to them and worship them. 
This question of worshipping idols would have been a, a more immediate concept, maybe, I think, for the original hearers of these commandments than it might be for us. We're going to have to think our way into this a little bit today. But for the, the Israelites who heard these commandments um, as God spoke them from the mountain, Mount Sinai, this, this was every bit as real an issue to them as anything we can imagine in our contemporary world. These guys had spent the last 400 years living in, in Egypt, and they were on their way to Canaan. Two very, very different cultures, but they had one thing in common. They had a plethora of false gods, and they always made concrete images of them, or idols, to help them in their worship. So for the Hebrews who... who this is hard for us to grasp, but, but remember, they're, they're brand new in their understanding of God. They're, they're infants. They're just starting out. And it would have been the most natural thing in the world for them to say, oh, our God, we need to capture him. We need to make a concrete version, something we can hold before us like the idols of all these other nations. We need to do as they do. This is how you worship. And just before they go off down that dead-end alley, God says, no, that's not how to worship me. Right from the beginning and at the outset, God says that worship of idols won't be tolerated. I don't know if you noticed as we read the whole of of that commandment with the bit that, that follows, that there are some pretty dire consequences to to idol worship that God's outlined for his people. And there's a reason for that, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But God's already demonstrated to these people that he is the, the true and living God. Remember the backdrop. In the last six months, he's rescued them from Egypt. He's taken them through a desert, through all sorts of difficult circumstances and environments. And he says, now that you've seen me working powerfully like that, don't, don't reduce me to something made of wood or of stone or of clay. God refused to allow his people to reduce him in this way. I think this is what's at the heart of idolatry, a desire to reduce God to a manageable size. If only we could harness the almighty God and bring him down to acceptable proportions, Something that we can work with a little bit. And for primitive peoples, the way they chose to do that, as we've already said, is, is carving wood and, and stone. And when you think about it, it's crazy. How on earth could we capture any sort of a living, uh, real God and, and, and capture him in the concrete forms? God, God inhabits eternity. His presence floods all of creation. You can't capture him in an idol or in a building. So nowadays in 21st century Britain, we're we're much more sophisticated than that. We'd never uh, resort. You know, I don't know that many of you have idols in your homes. I certainly haven't seen them uh, as I visited. I don't see that many shrines or... But we're still trying to reduce God still trying to accommodate him to our finite minds. So the the modern church is full of theologians and church leaders who who try to take the the all-powerful God and 
and reduce him to something more manageable. They tell us there are no miracles because our mind don't accept miracles. There's no awesome otherness. There's no transcendent power. In his book on the Ten Commandments, English evangelist J. John makes a very perceptive comment about why it is that we want idols. He says the attraction of idols is not that they're gods. It's that they're not gods. Idols offer the possibility to men and women of making their own controllable God. One they can deal with on their own terms. Folks, I think that's what's at the heart of idolatry. An unwillingness to deal with the reality of the real and living God and wanting instead something that we can manage or use or manipulate. The second commandment goes on to elaborate a little on this basic command. You shall not make for yourself an idol, and then it goes on and says, in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. Don't, don't try to capture the creator in any aspect of his creation. And Paul says in Romans 1 that that's exactly what we're prone to do. He says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Idolatry, worshipping a created thing rather than the creator. Let me give you a couple of examples of how we can make an idol out of a part of God's creation. Sex is one of God's good gifts to humanity. He, he gave it to us to enjoy and to encourage intimacy between a husband and a wife. But we live in a culture that's made sex into an end in itself. There's a problem with making a God out of sex. When you worship sex or any other part of God's creation for that matter, it fails to deliver. Instead of setting us free, it, it enslaves us. Uh, and we see this played out very vividly, I think, in the society in which we live today. One that reaches further and further into more degrading uh, and exploitative sexual practices. Pedophilia. Child pornography. When our warped sexual appetites are no longer, uh, no longer satisfied with, with people of our own, our own age and generation, uh, we degrade ourselves by humiliating and oppressing our children. Once we've exhausted our pursuit of, of kicks uh, through perversion of sex, then we move on to the next addiction, uh, whether it's drugs, whether it's well, the catalog is really endless. These addictions all destroy. They all take away life rather than give the life that they promise. People don't get healthier and happier through addiction. Their lives are destroyed and ruined. This is what happens when we worship a part of God's creation instead of the creator. We've gone to something looking for something that it can't deliver. Nothing in creation can deliver 
what, what our hearts were made for when we worship the true and living God. There's a, a first area, one of many, where idolatry plays itself out. I wish I could say that idolatry was only a problem out there. I wish I could promise that when you're here on a Sunday morning in this cozy environment that, that all is safe and well. But I don't think I can. For my second example of idolatry, I want to bring you right in here, right through those front doors and down these aisles and into the sanctuary where we're gathered just now. I want to bring you into the church. With over a decade of church ministry behind me, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the church is at least as able to generate idols. At least as able as, as any place beyond it. Again, J. John, he says, Sadly, even our churches are not exempt from idolatry. Organs, music groups, fine preaching, and correct theology are all good things, and there's no reason why we shouldn't expect to enjoy them. But it's all too easy for them to acquire a distorted prominence. When they do, they've ceased to be good, and they've started to become idols. When finally they've become the focus of what we are and what we stand for as churches, then I feel that God tends to leave quietly by the back door. He will not share his worship with any idols. That's chilling, isn't it? The prospect that we could gather here week by week and God wouldn't be in it, that he would take his presence elsewhere but why, why would God come to a place where our hearts are committed to something else? He will not share our worship with that of idols. This morning, as I've already said, the text of this commandment is a little bit longer than the others, and I don't want to, to leave much out, so I'm going to keep Keep moving on through this short paragraph. In verse 5, we find God explaining why he doesn't tolerate idolatry. And he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never really thought of jealousy as a very winsome quality in a person. So we need to think about this for a second. Why would God come to us and tell us that he's a jealous God? It's not even as though somebody else is, is trying to label him here. This is a self-definition uh, on God's part. He tells us that he is a jealous God. How can that be? I want you to imagine for a second that, that we're at home, uh, Claire and I and the family, and I've left my mobile lying on the bench in the, uh, on the worktop in the kitchen, as I often do. I'm upstairs in the study working on something, and there's a, an alert for an incoming text message. Claire happens to glance over and sees the name of a woman that she's never heard of. What's Claire going to say to herself? That's all very interesting. 
but you know, Christoph's entitled to a bit of privacy. You know, he's well entitled to have friendships with women that I know nothing about. That's that's fine. It's all good. Would it not be more likely that Claire would want to have a quick look? See who that text message is from. See how many more there are from this mystery caller. What would Claire's reaction be if she learned that I had been developing a relationship with this this other woman? If I'd been going to this woman for encouragement, affection, support. Do you think that would upset Claire? Do you think she'd believe me even the tiniest little bit if later that evening I was whispering in Claire's ear how much I love her with all my heart? Could you blame her for wanting to know exactly who that woman is, that her records go off my phone and computer and anything else immediately, and that I promise never to see her again? Would you blame Claire for any of those responses? Could you fault Claire for being jealous in that case? Her jealousy would be entirely justified and absolutely appropriate. If she didn't feel jealous, that would be an indicator that all was not well in our marriage. Friends, God has every bit as much of a right to be jealous when we turn our hearts to other gods as any husband or wife would have in a situation like the one I've described. God is the rightful lover of his people. God's love, we've seen this already in this short series, it runs as a consistent thread through everything that we've, we've been looking at with these Ten Commandments. These commandments are founded on God's love and God's grace. Look again at verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's redeemed these, this ragamuffin bunch of people. And he's bringing them to a land flowing of milk and honey. He declares himself to be their Lord and their God. So whenever he demands that they worship him exclusively, rightly and truly, it's because he's their husband. They're his wife. That's how the Bible talks about God and his people. We are the bride of Christ. If idolatry didn't make God jealous... I think there'd be a huge question mark over what kind of a love this really was. Let's keep moving on through this text. 
I don't want to miss the hard stuff in verse 5. We're told there that God's a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Doesn't that seem outrageous? That's the kind of statement that's enough to put a thinking modern person off the God of the Bible right there. I think I heard a comedian on the TV maybe a week or two ago making a joke about some part of the Bible that that rang a bit like this. We're talking here about God punishing the sin of those who hate him. And we've already thought a little bit about what that sin is, that deliberate turning aside uh, from giving him the love that he deserves to, to running after some other. It's a serious thing, and that's why God's able to talk about those who hate him. We demonstrate a disregard for him and a love for other things. And that sin, I would suggest, is like so many others. It carries its own judgment with it. I couldn't help but think of those communist regimes. If you, if you remember, they, they seem like a, a quickly fading memory at the moment, but they dominated a lot of my childhood. Those communist regimes who, who worked so hard to rule God out of the equation. There is no God. Atheism is our, our creed. One thing about those regimes, I never had a sense that they were, they were characterized by great freedom or joy or, or liberty on the part of their people. There's something about turning from the true and living God that brings its own uh, punishment with it. I want to talk for a moment about this idea of God punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Let me make a few comments on that. First of all, this is God's word to parents and not to children. So the warning here is directed at the parents who are tempted to sin without counting the cost that the effect of their sin is going to have. I wonder, do you believe in generational sin? Our province, I would suggest, is full of literally thousands of children who live significantly impoverished lives because of the choices and lifestyles their parents have chosen. Don't misunderstand me here. God's grace is available to all, to to the children themselves, to their parents. But let's not be so naive and so liberally minded that we think that the behavior of a parent doesn't impact their children. If that's how you see it, I'd ask you to have a quick think about that. I live with a very strong sense of the reality that how I live will have a huge impact on my children. And it's a sobering thought. Second point, God never punishes anyone for the sins of another person. Just last summer, I was reading in Ezekiel, uh, the book of the Bible that I find hardest to read. So I wasn't expecting much. I thought, right, here it is, Ezekiel, let's go. And I saw something that just came alive for me. 
it spoke to me about, uh, and it gave me some hope for my people, uh, the German nation. I don't know if you understand this, but modern day Germans have struggled with what we call the guilt of the nation. A burden that they carry for the guilt of their fathers. And then I read this in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. So the German nation post-1945 certainly has lived with the effects of Hitler's regime, with the shame of the Holocaust, but God's word assures me that they do not carry the blame, the guilt for the events of that period. They do not carry the guilt of their fathers. Do you see what this means for us? It means that even if a parent rejects God, and even if their children suffer as a result, the children will not be held liable for the sin of the parents. Our sin as parents will always be ours alone. Our children will be judged before God by by their actions. Thirdly, uh, on this subject of, of children and parents, I believe that parents create the environment in which our children are emotionally and spiritually formed. There's a funny thing that goes on in parenting, I think, where where we wish our kids did exactly what we want them to do, and when they don't, we imagine that we have no influence on them. I don't believe that's true. Parents influence their children massively in ways that they would like to and in ways that they don't or wouldn't like to. Friends, I hope we're beginning to see that there's nothing trivial about parenting. I hope that's something we can see in this passage. And I hope we can see as well that there's nothing trivial about idolatry. And I'm pleading here with Christian parents, don't lead your children to worship idols. You might think that's an obvious thing to say. I don't believe that it is. I believe there's an awful lot of idolatry taught and learned in the church and in our homes. We lead our children to follow the idols of the world, education, success, respectability. We lead them to prioritize exactly the same things that people without God prioritize. And when we do that, we lead them into idolatry. Let's lead them to Jesus the Savior of the world, who loves them, the rightful lover of their souls. Folks, our time is up for this morning. And that's been a a heavy, heavy paragraph, I believe. And it's wonderful to see that it finishes with just the note of God's grace that we need to add the balance and perspective here. Look at verse 6. God promises, the God who, who tells us of the, the punishment that children endure to the third or fourth generation, he then goes on to say that he shows his love to a thousand generations 
to those who love him and obey his commands. I wonder if we've got the right sense of proportion here. Three or four and a thousand. God's not naive about sin. He tells us of the impact that it will have and how people will suffer as a result. But our sinfulness and his judgment on it is always dwarfed by his grace and his mercy and his kindness. His love is for a thousand generations. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean a thousand generations and then draw the line. It means forever. His love is forever. Folks, this commandment, I believe, presents us with a a very real choice to make. Will we worship the true and living God who made us for him and who loves us? Or will we worship idols that promise much but deliver little, that enslave us and ensnare us and take us finally to death? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Let it be the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for those moments when your word is what you promise it to be, a double-edged sword. When it cuts to the bone. When like a, a surgeon's scalpel, you skillfully apply it to the, the malignancies, the, the sinful idolatries of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would look on us that you would show us where we have gone off the tracks and have worshipped the wrong things. Lord, take those idols from us and free us to worship the right things, to worship you, the true and the living God. We pray it in Jesus' name because he's the only one worthy of our love and affection. Amen. We're going to sing together just now. I think it's number 378. Jesus shall take the highest honor. Um, We'll keep our seats as we sing it uh, and and let the stewards uh, lift the offering. Jesus shall take the highest honor.